Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 401 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab. Training. When the astronauts came together under the Skylab program in late 1970, there was no single office from which they all worked. The Skylab astronaut office was several smaller separate offices occupying the whole third floor of Building 4 at the Manned Space Center. There were no dedicated offices, however, and some of the group tried to organize the desk into the same smaller rooms. The designs of the Skylab components were advanced enough to the point of being constructed. There were lists of experiments to be performed and many documents of the planned objectives and expected achievements from the missions. But the astronauts still had nothing on which to train. Apart from physically training for the longest manned missions that the United States had ever attempted, the actual training program was developed simultaneously with the hardware and experiments for the mission. It was also not as simple as assigning a crew who then jumped into simulators to determine how to operate equipment or live on the station. All of this was also under development at the same time. However, from late 1970, there was very limited access to simulators, but the only thing that was available was the command module simulator that was being used by the crews of Apollo 15 through 17. Pete Conrad's crew was scheduled to be the first to fly to Skylab, and they worked as leaders for the training as they evaluated their own mission. It was Pete Conrad who, in April of 1971, sent a memo to all of his astronauts specifying who would be responsible for what. He made the assignments based on experience and on equalizing both the training and the in-flight workload. The commander would have overall responsibility for the flight plan and training. He would also be responsible for the Apollo spacecraft systems 
and spacewalks. Pete estimated that this would take about 1,411 hours of training. The science pilot would be responsible for medical and Apollo telescope mount hardware and experiments and would be the second spacewalk crewman. In the end, all three crewmen trained to make spacewalks. The estimated training time was 1,500 hours. And finally, there was the pilot, who would be responsible for the airlock, the multi-docking adapter, and workshop systems, and for the Earth Resources Experiment Package, hardware, and experiments. Estimated training time was 1,420 hours. Astronauts Carr and Pogue performed the development of the training protocol, and Bean and Lausma worked with the other four. The crew considered the training as two phases. First, there was the systems and operations that were required to make Skylab work and to allow them to live on board. Second, there were the science investigations with their own operating procedures. During the training, the pilots concentrated on the systems and procedures and the scientists concentrated on the experiments and research. Of course, the beginning of the operational phase was the Apollo command module, the orbiting workshop, and its facilities. How they operated and what was required to make them work. Training for this eventually evolved into an operation checklist which formed the basic training document that would evolve as the program developed. This allowed the astronauts to become familiar with the basic workings of the whole system. However, with the command and service module simulator being mainly occupied by Apollo astronauts until 1972, the Skylab crews were only allowed occasional sessions in them. Since they would be first, Conrad's crew took priority, and Bean used the simulator at the Cape. Once the first crew had launched, the command module simulator became more available to the third crew. Fortunately, Pogue had specialized and worked on the command module simulator since joining NASA in 1966, so this was never a major issue for that crew. Of course, flight controllers and mission control required training as well. The first simulator used to train the flight controllers illustrated the lack of operational training hardware available for Skylab. Gene Krantz organized a very basic simulator linked to consoles. It was operated by an engineer flipping switches to make lights come on. Why was such a rudimentary system required? Skylab flight controllers needed this mock-up because the real mission control was still occupied with controlling and training for Apollo missions. Occasionally, this crude but effective system became available to the Skylab astronauts who tried to obtain simulator time as often as possible.
the training mock-ups of the Orbital Workshop, multiple docking adapter, and airlock module advanced as the training advanced and often required updates to the workbook developed to operate the system. Then the crew realized how the flight equipment could soon become different from the training hardware. Then in February 1972, about a year before the launch of the Skylab station, the Mission Control Center team began running their first serious simulations for the mission. The long-duration aspect of the Skylab program presented new challenges for the mission control team that would require advanced preparation. On the ground, every moment that the crews were in space, a team of people would be supporting them around the clock in mission control. In fact, the control team would be operating Skylab even when the astronauts were not aboard it. And for the mission control team, as much as for the astronauts, Skylab was a new spacecraft, completely unlike anything flown before, with its own unique parameters and requirements. In addition, the work the crews would be doing on Skylab would be unlike anything done in space before so new procedures would have to be learned in order to support them. Phil Schaefer was the lead flight director for Skylab. I have an excerpt from the book Homesteading Space where he describes the differences and similarities between Skylab and Apollo mission control operations and what mission control had to train for. Excerpt begins. Operations control for Skylab was a mixture of old and new for the flight directors, with some elements being very similar to those in Apollo and others being different from anything flown before. The similar part was that there was a trajectory function and there were the system functions. There was an electrical guy, a communications guy, there was an environmental guy, each with their support staff, and in that sense, it was all very similar. The manning level, or the expertise requirement, was the same as if we were doing a lunar mission. The mission control teams looked like Apollo teams or Gemini teams in the way they were structured, because there was a flight director who literally was responsible for everything. There was a capsule communicator for air-to-ground voice. There was a surgeon and there was a network guy. And all of those positions had slightly different names. Like GNC for guidance, navigation, and control for the command and service module was called GNS, guidance navigation system for the Skylab to distinguish the different positions. Different names were required when both the command and service module and Skylab were up and active at the same time. There was a limited on-orbit team for when the command and service module was powered down. 
there were five on-orbit teams that did planning, preparation, and support execution for the experiments, EVAs, maintenance, and repair, or whatever else was going on. These teams were led by Phil Schaefer, Don Putty, Neil Hutchinson, Chuck Lewis, and Milt Windler. There was also a trajectory team led by Schaefer that was decidedly different from the on-orbit teams. It supported launch and rendezvous and deorbit and entry and maintaining orbital lifetime by raising the vehicle orbital altitude. They did all those calculations. So there were six teams, five on-orbit teams, and one trajectory team, basically for the year of the Skylab program. Differences began with the launch. The crew flew into space on one spacecraft that was essentially a taxi carrying them to another spacecraft where they would spend the bulk of their mission. Another thing that was different was having two very dissimilar vehicles, with some of the time both being active so that you had two calm guys and two environmental guys and two electrical guys on occasion, Schaefer said. Certainly, until you got the Skylab powered down for leaving or the command service module powered down for the habitation period, the situation on Apollo was similar. During the lunar landing sequence with the lunar module and the command and service module being involved, It was a bit of a zoo, keeping all of that business straight. The attitude control systems for the massive Skylab space station were also very different from both a conceptual and an operational standpoint than any of their predecessors. The new for Skylab was not new in name, but new in type, and that was an attitude control system with control moment gyros. That was a whole new business in place of small rockets. Reaction control thrusters to control the attitude. You had these giant control moment gyros that were wonderful. The CMG system was assisted by a cold gas system called TAGS, which meant Thruster Attitude Control System. Attitude control basically amounts to which way the spacecraft is pointing. On Apollo, it was pretty straightforward. A basic application of Newton's law that states for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. That law is what allows rockets to travel through space, even though there is nothing there to push against. A rocket engine burns fuel to generate thrust, and the action of the engine spewing flames backwards leads to the opposite reaction of the rocket moving forward. The same principle that pushes a large rocket through space also, on a much smaller scale, allowed the Apollo spacecraft to control its attitude. Rocket engines burned fuel, and the spacecraft turned in the opposite direction. The Skylab thruster attitude control system took that simple concept 
and applied it in an even simpler way. Rather than burning fuel, the TAGS system simply vented cold gas into space. The action of the gas being vented produced the opposite reaction needed to control attitude. The GMGS worked on a more arcane principle of physics angular momentum. Tilting the spinning rotor of a control moment gyroscope resulted in a torque that would rotate the entire station. So attitude control via CMG had the additional benefit for a long-duration mission of requiring no fuel, relying instead on the power produced by Skylab's solar panels. In addition to the new attitude control techniques, Schaefer said new mission control responsibilities were added to provide support for the science operations on Skylab. And then there were the experiments. We had a control function for Earth sensing. We had a control function for the celestial viewing. One looked up, the other looked down. We had a control function, a control position for all the biomedical activity, a control function for material science. While mission control had been involved in science support before, notably during the lunar research during Apollo, Schaefer said that the support needed to coordinate the Skylab research was substantially more complex. For example, both Skylab and Apollo missions included making surface observations from orbit. Skylab had its Earth Resources Observation Package and Apollo carried equipment in the service module's scientific instrument module bay that imaged the lunar surface. Although there was a general similarity in function, they were very different in operation. The Earth Resources guy in Mission Control, for instance, had a huge coordination activity he did with the aircraft overflight and with the ground truth people and with the weather service going on with his planning. This was dramatically different from the equivalent function on Apollo. The guy in the command service module was not running the sim bay. Another change for Skylab that was worked out before flight was the real-time mission planning that would have to take place while the crews were in orbit. On prior missions, extremely detailed plans were laid out ahead of time. On Skylab, more activities were scheduled on a day-to-day basis during the mission. Every day, the flight control teams would plan out what the crew would do the next day. The evening shift did the detailed preparation for the next workday's activity, Schaefer said. The midnight shift did the overall plan for two days hence, and in part, I think, That was done to provide shelf life for both the support data that was going to go to the crew for the upcoming day and to give negotiation and preparation time for the structure of the plan two days hence. That's not to say no planning was done further ahead. 
Rough outlines of activities were put together for a week in advance, structured around such things as astronomical or earth resource observations that were to be made. Since those had to take place at a very precise particular time, they were placed on the schedule first, and other activities that were more flexible were filled in around them. All of that was done by the time we entered the upcoming 24-hour thing. Then the remaining pieces were put in. The surgeons would have to get their requirements in. Life sciences was a really big deal, so significant effort was needed to get all of their activities in within their constraints. Vehicle maintenance had to be done, including servicing the Apollo telescope mount and the associated EVA activity. All of that got dropped into the plan. All of that happened on the evening shift, and that was new. The nearest thing to it may have been the lunar excursion planning activity while crews were on the lunar surface for two or three days. It evolved, and we all got really comfortable with it. There was some concern about why there had to be so many levels of advanced planning, but the system proved effective. Among its strengths was that getting a good bit of planning done early freed up more time to react to any unexpected situations or to finish any previous scheduling that needed adjustment. If we needed more time to get the detailed flight plan support stuff ready for the crew, you had it, Schaefer said. There was basically another whole shift available to finish up that work. And if something was wrong with your big plan for the day, then you had time to negotiate whatever problems that created. And that's the end of the excerpt. Now let's move on to the experiment training. Very little was done before 1971 on the experiment training. The scientist astronauts frequently went off for a day or two to different parts of the country to work with principal investigators and vendors to ensure that the experiment hardware was compatible with the flight equipment and that the operating procedures would actually work. An example of this was the hours of effort which Carl Henneyes devoted to working the stellar experiments into the program. He spent much time working with the astronomers in designing the hardware and research programs. As a professional astronomer, Carl could understand the objectives and the requirements of the principal investigators, and as an astronaut, he knew what could and could not be done by the crew. He then talked to the crew, showing them how the hardware worked and why they should carry out the procedure in a certain way. Henneyes also stressed what information they were trying to gather from the experiment or hardware. The fact that Carl was providing his own experiment helped him with his explanations for the crews. What made things more difficult was throughout the two years of training, the mock-ups and trainers were constantly changing, so the challenge was to keep up with the changes to ensure 
that what the astronauts trained on was the latest version that had been selected to fly. At first, astronauts trained in groups, either pilots or scientists or as prime, backup, or the whole group. Only later did they form into the three crews to define their own flight procedures. The missions were originally planned to last up to 56 days, so they hoped a ground simulation of a 56-day mission would help identify and rectify many operational and procedural difficulties. Unfortunately, there were no extended simulation runs for any of the three flight crews. Instead, the flight crews were kept up to date by regular daily reports and occasional visits to the simulator where the test was being held. They also operated many sims that began in the mock-ups at 6 a.m. and lasted until lunch or even till 10 p.m. at night. In these, they practiced certain procedures or hardware operations, inserting habitability training into a working day. At first, these were problem-free simulations to practice the procedures and become familiar with their operation. Only later, in the integrated simulators with mission control and simulation engineers, did the crews practice with malfunctions and emergency situations. Most of the training was hands-on instead of book study. There were scores of lectures, classroom sessions, and study on the scientific activities which were handled by principal investigators in Houston. This was then added to the mock-ups in the simulators to put the theory into practice. To compress the time allocated to training and not leave the crew waiting around for the next step, any downtime in the simulations was skipped. A bench review was first conducted prior to simulating the event on training devices. On some occasions, the crew worked on flight hardware in white rooms and never even saw any training hardware. The astronaut trained with a principal investigator and their training officer for each item, procedure, or experiment. Each crew had a main training officer, a training coordinator, and beneath that person was a team dedicated to different hardware or experiments, which coordinated between the crew and the principal investigators or vendor, and who also developed a training procedure list. Initially, scientists were very skeptical whether the astronauts, who were mostly just pilots, could be competent enough to meet experiment objectives or to understand what they were trying to do. However, the scientists were pleasantly surprised at the success of the flights, although Bill Pogue could never quite understand what some of the medical experiments were trying to achieve, and Jerry Carr thought that he became a better student of solar physics when he stopped actually trying to be one and simply became a competent observer. Additionally, the desire to deliver the best that they possibly could sometimes pressured the crew into trying to learn 
more than they could handle. Fortunately, the support crews came in to help deal with hundreds of minor developments, procedures, and problems that needed tracking and tasking as the complexity of the training increased. Pete Conrad organized a weekly group meeting to discuss progress in certain areas, and then at the Monday morning meeting, each crew was required to report their progress or lack of progress in that area. A benefit which later arose was the debriefing from the first crew, which was used as guidance for the second and third crews. The crew debriefing was held by Slayton, Shepard, and Kleinick in a locked room. Each crew member was responsible for a series of systems or hardware backed up by the other two crew members and trained to that effect. These were the specialty areas that they worked on for their flight. Once in flight, the crew could ask questions of the previous crew. A lot of these questions were things like, where were certain things located? They were usually told that something had been moved or the previous crew could not remember where they were. For these flights, inventory control was a major issue as everything in training had a place and was put back. But in actual flight, this was not always the case. At Kennedy Space Center, only the command service module simulator was available, but training for emergency pad evacuation and crew fit and function were accomplished there. Of course, the Skylab crews went through training for off-nominal re-entry that could return them to Earth far from where they were supposed to land. Although they never had to be used, the water egress and desert and jungle training were generally enjoyable. The second cruise science pilot, Owen Garriott, said, The jungle training took place in Panama under the guidance of local Choco Indians. They were expert trackers and, of course, knew the jungle as their own backyard. Garriott said, quote, We were given an eight-hour or so head start and told to evade capture and meet some 24 to 48 hours later on the beach some distance away. We all took off in groups of three. I was with Tony England and Carl Hennies at a fast trot trying to get as far away as possible before darkness descended. The Chocos would set out after us and try to grab our hats, which was the equivalent to a capture. We succeeded almost too well. We didn't get captured, but we ran for so long that it got dark before we had properly made camp. We hurriedly gathered sticks to try to make a lean-to to be covered with a nylon sheet and to make a fire from small pieces of wood. But the everyday rains made a fire impossible. But darkness and more showers arrived before we had anything 
like a dry shelter. That night has been long remembered as the most uncomfortable mosquito-plague night of my life. Of course, we had to have a graduation celebration after we were all finally recovered on the banks of the Panama Canal. Scientist astronaut Story Musgrave, always the adventuresome explorer, thought it could be fun to swim across the canal in pitch darkness. So he stripped down and paddled off into the night with numerous warnings about avoiding the alligators. In an hour or so, back he came, none the worse for any animal encounters. End quote. Ed Gibson also had a memorable experience during his survival training. Despite all the challenges of living in the wild, Gibson decided the biggest threat to his own survival was one of his own teammates. Gibson said, quote, People ask me, what is the most dangerous thing I have ever done in the space program? Well, we went on a jungle survival trip, and I was out in the forest with Jack Lausma and Vance Brand. And after a couple of days or so, Jack was getting pretty hungry. And he kind of came up and started feeling my flesh. And I realized my objective for that whole time was to find enough food to feed him so I wouldn't get eaten. End quote. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 401 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab Training Part 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode should be released on or about November 17th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 221 are available on the archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. If you are so inclined, my Twitter handle is working again. The, the handle is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can follow me on Facebook if you like. You can also keep up with me on Patreon. The URL is patreon.com slash Space Rocket History. Where in addition to episodes, I post some extra things. Okay, had some afterthoughts for this episode. First of all, I apologize for my mispronunciations. I know there were quite a few. I want to thank everyone who came to the 400th episode celebration live. I think it went well. 
Thanks so much for coming, and thanks for all the kind comments. We had a really funny question that came in uh, live, and the question was something like, uh, who would play Mrs. SRH and me in a movie about our lives? And the suggestion was uh, Julia Roberts for Mrs. SRH and uh, (laughs) Bruce Willis for me. Believe it or not, (laughs) several people said, have said to me that I look like Bruce, which I take as a compliment because he looks a little bit better than me, I think. Now, Mrs. SRH, played by Julia Roberts, I don't know about that. She is a beautiful woman. I mean, legit. It's not because she's listening to me say this right now, but it's the truth. She is a beautiful woman, and she has actually won two beauty contests. So, to play Mrs. SRH, I want Kate Beckinsale to play her in our fictitious movie. Anyway, we... (laughs) We had a lot of serious questions, too, and I thought everyone that submitted a question did a good job. Oh, and I want to thank our moderator, Buddy, who really helped us out, and he got the green screen background working with the logo and the stars. That was the whole that looked good. I thought, thank you, Buddy, for that. If you missed the live show... It's not too late. You can still see the recorded version. Go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the YouTube link. It is the third box down on the right. If you are a new listener, I really want to encourage you to check this out because it will probably answer some of the questions you may have about the podcast, why we do certain things certain ways, and the content matter and things like that. So, go ahead, click the link. Now, I checked YouTube analytics, and they said the uh, video has been viewed 437 times. So, hopefully we can get that number up a bit. Because I know I have a whole lot more listeners than that. Hope you enjoyed a little bit of information on the training of astronauts and controllers for Skylab on this episode. I will have the conclusion next time. I uh, really just thought we needed to cover training since they spent so much time on it. And it was a good deal different than the Apollo training. That excerpt I read was from Homesteading Space. I really like it for, I really like the book for all of its direct astronaut quotes. And this information was not from an astronaut. This information was from Phil Shaver, the lead flight director for Skylab, and was ultimately responsible for it on a day-to-day basis, which makes him a primary source, which are highly sought after, in the history profession. And Homesteading Space is the book I have been using for most of the astronaut quotes, so I highly recommend it. I found it just a tad bit insulting how the scientists looked down on the pilots when they 
didn't think they were competent enough to conduct science experiments correctly. But, in the end, the pilots did a pretty good job. I mean, they all had master's degrees, at least, didn't they? It seems like they all did. I come, they can conduct an experiment. Come on, guys. I thought it was pretty impressive that uh, Gene Krantz organized that very basic simulator linked to consoles. Remember, it worked with just an engineer flipping switches to make lights come on in response to actions by controllers. So you've got the controllers over there simulating operation, and you've got an engineer sitting over there, and he's just responding by flipping the correct switch to turn their light on on their console. So it wasn't very complicated, but it was useful until the time when they completed the moon missions and were able to use the real equipment. So hats off to Mr. Krantz. How about that uh, backup scientist astronaut Story Musgrave? He thought it would be fun to swim across the Panama Canal in pitch dark so he goes on an hour-long swim with the alligators, and this was after he completed his survival training. Now, I ask you this question. Is that amazing? Is that amazingly stupid? Or is it both? I know one thing for sure. I wouldn't have done it. I want to give a shout out to SpaceX for another launch of the world's most powerful operational rocket on uh, November 1st. Congratulations. It's always good to see the Falcon Heavy fly. And as far as I know, Artemis is still coming up on November 14th, very early in the morning Eastern Time. So if you can, watch that, and it should be really good in the night. I'm, I'm hoping, unless it's foggy or something like that, but who knows what the weather will be. We can't control that. Okay, uh, let's move on. Uh, donations over the past uh, fortnight, we had several donations. I would like to thank Steve B. from Seattle, who pledged on Patreon at the NASA level. At the NASA level. Mighty impressive. Steve C. from Georgia sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Ron B. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. Terry B. sent in another donation and is at the NASA level as well. Peter M. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Our Patreon donors are at 249 with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of 2022. We've got a couple months to do that. Can we do it? Yes, we can do it. Will we do it? Yeah, well, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> so, especially for those who have never supported the podcast, if you are enjoying this podcast, that's been running now for almost nine and three-quarter years without commercial interruptions, and you can afford it. 
please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or, if you prefer, you can donate by mail, which works great for me because the mail doesn't take a cut out like Patreon and PayPal do. Please make sure you use my correct mail address, and if you will email me, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, I will give you my correct U.S. Postal Service mailing address. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thank you, Mike, for those sweet compliments. You are truly my sweetheart. Well, Space Rocket History friends, that 400th YouTube celebration was a lot of fun. But boy, it was a lot of work too. A lot more than I thought it would be. It was a good thing the next day was a Saturday so we could rest. Not sure we're fully recovered yet. (laughs) Now for the drawing. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Jim Barlow. Jim Barlow, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 356 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 402 posted on or before November 17th. So long for now.